Welcome everyone to our Polaris podcast. I am Jeremy Wipek, a partner of the Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, and we have on with us Jeff Powell. Jeff, good morning to you. Good morning. And so Jeff is our Chief Investment Officer and Managing Partner. And so Jeff, really looking forward to the conversation that we have today. This is something that we uh, run into a lot with uh, financial planning, and this is one of those topics where I think it can be a bit intimidating because it's not necessarily something that's well understood. And that is the uh, topic of insurance and, and more specifically life insurance. And so this is a tool that we commonly use, uh, use to help uh, plan for the future. But can you give us a breakdown of, I guess, first what life insurance is and how it, or why it's an effective tool that we use when looking at uh, long-term financial plans with our clients? Yeah, I mean, the the purpose between uh, life insurance, I mean, you've got to kind of really break it down. There's There's replacement of income and there's asset protection. Uh, those are the two main sources of why one person would look to uh, to look to a life insurance policy. Uh, and there's lots of ways of being able to, to protect against uh, against both. Got it. So um, with regard to the uh, protection of income, um, and this is something that I think uh, can't be understated, um, one of the most valuable assets that people often have is their ability to earn income over their lifetime. And so a premature death uh, can really throw a wrench into the quality of life for a family. And so to your point, um, the life insurance can be invaluable in protecting a family, especially when it has young kid or other vulnerable people within the party, um, if something like that were to occur. The asset protection is something I don't know that people necessarily think of when they, uh, at least first, when they think of uh, life insurance. How does that work with life insurance? Well, I mean, asset protection and really what you're looking for is um, normally an estate planning issue. So for people with higher net worth, when they're starting to have uh, part of their estate taxed, uh, what they look for is the life insurance to be a tax-free replacement of the money that's being uh, being taxed. So <clears throat> right now we have a pretty high threshold uh, of where estate taxes kick in. It's, it's over $11 million. Uh, let's just use that 11 because it's uh, it's kind of a silly number. But uh, so if you've got a married couple with a living trust, you can have a $22 million uh, pass through to your children of assets. Uh, so unless you are either at that level or projecting to be above that level, there's really no reason to go out and, and insure against this unless you expect there to be some sort of material change uh, in the estate tax law, which quite honestly, very easily could change. Uh, but for right now, we've got to act upon what we know. Uh, so if somebody had, for example, let's just make the math simple and say they had a $50 million net worth. And again, let's round down and just say it was $10 million per person to make the math simple. You'd have $20 million worth of exempt assets from estate taxes, 30 of which would be taxed by the federal government. Uh, if your state that you're living in is also uh uh, taxes, and you'd have to take that into consideration. We'll just look at Fed. Uh, so you would lose essentially half of that money uh, above the $20 million mark. So of the 30 that's above uh, with a $50 million net worth, 30 of that million is going to be, you know, going to have half of it taken away. So about $15 million worth of taxes. Now, many of you might say, boo-hoo, uh, you know, you're losing $15 million of, of $50 million. You still have $35 million to pass on to your children. And some people take that stance. They don't go out and buy life insurance to offset that. Other people want their full estate to move on to their children. And it's really a personal thing. So if you're the type of person has that net worth and has uh, that type of thought process, 
what you want to do is replace that $15 million with life insurance, uh, typically, again, through a whole life insurance policy uh, so that the life insurance doesn't expire at any point in time. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense, Jeff. Um, and one other thing that I would throw in there, too, is the liquidity that the insurance injects into the portfolio that to use your example of the $30 million above the uh, the exclusion amount, which would result in a $15 million tax bill. Sometimes that can be extremely problematic to come up with the 15 million if the family's in anything that's not uh, liquid. So be it a private business or real estate or something along those lines. And so um, not only covering the taxes, but also just having the cash infusion that's necessary to pay the taxes can uh, be really important. Um, when, when this topic comes up, um, one of the first things that someone will be asked is should they buy whole versus term versus universal? And I think this is where life insurance um, starts to get a bit intimidating. Um, can you kind of break down what is the difference? What are they referring to when they talk about whole versus term? Well, term life is more like what you buy for your car or buy to replace your house. It's it's a limited amount of time. Um, it's uh, it's basically, I don't want to say borrowed would be probably the, the wrong way of saying it, but basically it's temporary life insurance. Uh, whereas whole life insurance, you're actually investing in the underlying product, uh, as we used with our example, with saying a $15 million life insurance policy, uh, you probably would want that on each person individually. And then there's cash value that's built up uh, because the insurance is cheaper now versus when the person gets older in life. So you need to build up a, a reserve in order to be able to offset some of those expenses. But it, with, with term, the interesting thing there is again, you're you're simply trying to replace. So one of the, the strategies that I've seen, you you brought up the fact of, of paying a mortgage or whatever. Uh, in today's society, we the majority of people that are out there have dual income. You're, you were talking about small kid, uh, small kids, and and so on. I mean, uh, where you're probably at your most vulnerable is where you have uh, dual income and young children. I mean, it's one thing to sit there and say, okay, well my kids are out of the house. Well, then you don't really have a replacement of income issue. You're really trying to make sure that uh, your kids and uh, that you're able to survive if something were to happen to uh, the secondary spouse. So a couple strategies there. One one is uh, a declining term uh, where you do a, uh, a term policy based upon the mortgage size. So if you got a million dollar mortgage and then the next year you're paying it off over a 30 year time period, you might want to get a 30 year declining term it goes down with the uh, asset base of uh, the policy that you're dealing with or the uh, the type of mortgage you're dealing with. So if you were to pass, then your policy pays off the mortgage so that your spouse can remain in the house and not have to have also the income necessary in order to pay for that mortgage. Uh, the other things you can do is simply buy enough life insurance that you could go out in a reasonable market and replace that income. So you again want to be looking at that based upon the age of the person because Obviously, a 30-year-old is going to be probably making less than a 40 or 50-year-old, but they also have a longer earning time period in which to do so. So you kind of have to play around with those numbers and understand the client, understand their specific needs. And really what you're trying to do in that situation is to, to offset uh, a loss of income. Yeah, well, and to your point, Jeff, uh, it becomes clear that it uh, can become quickly uh, very complex in determining what that number is. Um, and I think your example is a great one in that when you're in your say 30s, not making as much money, but you have the most time on your side versus if you're in your 40s and 50s. And so finding that right number can be somewhat daunting. 
I think this is where it's important to point out that one of the things that we do is we help people figure out what that number is. We're able I, would to also throw, I would also throw on top of that, Jeremy, and I apologize to interrupt you. I mean, again, you're most at, at risk. I mean, when you're in your 30s, you have the least amount of savings. Uh, when you're, at, you're in your 30s, that the dual income that you're dealing with doesn't go as far. And if you've, you've got small mouths to feed if you have kids at that point or if you have kids at all, but you're really at the greatest amount of financial risk uh, at those levels versus you know, if you still have kids at home like I do in my 50s, um, you know, I've got a, a child that's you know, four years from college, but I've already saved for his college and I've already done other things that are uh, items that you'd probably want to insure if you were younger. So it, it's things like that that you, you really need to be taking into consideration. And if you're working with a, a wealth advisor or a financial planner, these are, are definitely questions that need to be discussed with somebody at great length in order to be able to be properly insured. Yeah, and most definitely. And, and the last thing I was going to say is that one of the big things that we're able to calculate for people using uh, modeling is what that number should be and where they can have a reasonable safeguard of preserving their uh, their life um, or quality of life rather without breaking the bank either because it's very easy to significantly overshoot the mark and have a significant drag. Um, one of the other concepts that comes up with regard to a lot of these policies and different things that people are trying to protect is an individual policy or a second to pass away type policy. Um, uh, I guess even though the name does somewhat imply what that means, can you talk about what the difference is between the two and when one's more appropriate versus another? Yeah, so I mean, right now what we've kind of discussed is the, the um, temporary insurance. So you're, you're basically offsetting someone's life when they're younger. Um, when you start having projections of, or let's say that you believe that the government's going to lower um, the amount of money that you can pass on without estate taxes, then, then you should be starting to really think more about permanent life insurance. And when you're talking about permanent life insurance, there again is lots of strategies. But I think where things get really confusing with this is you've got whole life insurance policies, you have variable life insurance policies, uh, lots of different things that uh, variable universal life policies, lots of things that can be confusing to people and, and they, they're kind of throw their hands up in the air and they don't understand exactly what they're purchasing. And so in, in the process of this really, again, working with somebody like us, we have no dog in that game. We don't earn commissions and how we deal with things. So sitting down with uh, an advisor at Polaris, I think would make a lot of sense for somebody because we're gonna give you the straight, the narrow, and exactly what we think you should be doing and why we think that you should be doing it. Um, within a kind of having a, a single policy versus having a joint policy for your, with a, a spouse is often a strategy used for estate planning only. Um, and so the thought behind it is that, for example, if you've got one person that's not insurable, having two people on a policy uh, puts it in a specific nature where you can actually get that that uninsured person insured, uh, because typically it's just going to be, even though it's got both people's names on it, it's going to be based upon the other person. Uh, but the, the problem here is this. Uh, if, if husband and wife pass within six months or a year from now, a second to die policy probably makes a little bit more sense because... Uh, it's based on dual life. Dual life is going to give you a longer projection. Longer projection means that you've got less of, of an expense uh, on an annualized basis because you're spreading the cost of the insurance over a longer period of time. That being said, if you've got any kind of length of time between 
husband and, and wife passing, typically the husband passes first. You know, the wife might live another 10, 15 years. If you're, if you're trying to pass wealth on to the next generation, oftentimes having different life insurance on different people makes a lot more sense because you can have a cash distribution go to the second generation earlier and they can either invest or use that money how they wish to before uh, having a second injection uh, when uh, the second spouse uh, were to pass. So there's a little bit of thought process behind that uh, and, and what makes the most amount of sense. Um, I think that again, it really would kind of come down to understanding of the insured in order to make a wise decision about that. Yeah, and Jeff, thank you so much for that breakdown. And this is one of those where there's certainly not a one size fits all, or it's really important to understand what the goals are, what the needs are, and ultimately what the, not only the person that potentially passes is looking to accomplish, but the survivors to um, find the best tool to, uh, to accomplish that. Because to your point, a second to die policy is not going to infuse any cash into uh, an estate until that second person passes, as the name implies. But that means that when the second spouse is around, there's there's nothing there to work with yet. And so um, an individual policy may be much more appropriate in that situation. Joe, the other thing that I thought would be very helpful to talk about, since you have a, a very strong um, understanding of how this works, is Let's say that I'm a client. I decide that I want to go out and buy insurance. So I'm, I'm shopping out two whole policies and I give them my needs and I come back with two very different quotes. One is suggesting that I'm going to get a very strong return and my uh, premiums are going to be much lower than the second policy that I go and shop out where they're perhaps a bit more conservative in my estimates and they're estimating that I'm going to need to put in a significant amount more in either monthly or annual contributions. What's going on there? And is there anything or any pitfalls that people should be aware of when uh, shopping for insurance that uh, sometimes uh, they don't really understand fully until it's too late? So unfortunately, the insurance industry has uh, a reputational issue. Um, and a lot of it is uh, as a result of what you've kind of already hit on, Jeremy, which is that a lot of people don't really fully understand what the 